Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Greg Wells, and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high-performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion-person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living, And my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success. And that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Great to be with you. Today, I talked to my friend, Eric Edmides. I've traveled the world with Eric. We've spoken together in different locations. I actually had dinner with him randomly. We bumped into each other in uh, Lithuania when we were both randomly there speaking at different events. And over that dinner, Eric and I got really deep into health and life and our strategies for trying to ultimately change the world. And in that conversation, I was like, Eric, I got to interview you for my podcast. We got to go over this again. And that's exactly what we did here. So he really has four aspects of his life that he talks about. There's serial entrepreneurship. Uh, he's a strategic advisor and keynote speaker. He focuses a lot on extraordinary, extraordinary living and he champions health and self-care. He's got a really interesting company that's built around that, which I'll describe in a moment. And of course, he's a father and a husband. So we dive into family also. Let me tell you a little bit more about each of those different areas. He's a true serial entrepreneur. He spent the last 20 years starting, buying, selling, turning around businesses. He's done that in six different countries. Uh, He's owned businesses in data capture, field service, networking, events management, medical simulations, special effects, and he's even worked in blockbuster movies, including James Cameron's groundbreaking Avatar, uh, Neil Blomkamp's Elysium, and the Iron Man, Transformers, and Pirates in the Caribbean franchises. As a keynote speaker, he's logged over 10,000 hours on stage and has spoken in over 20 countries around the world. He routinely speaks at business, marketing, and technology conferences, film festivals, corporate engagements, and he does pro bono talks for organizations and schools. He is one of the true pioneers of the coming food revolution. He founded WildFit, which is a company that allows Eric to channel his passion into helping people, and in particular, children, with a focus on developing outstanding health. And this all came about as a result of his personal health turnaround. In 1991, he was in a very bad place from his health. He then undertook years of research into the fields of human health, evolutionary biology, and human history, which links up to his family's uh, work in history, which you're going to hear about in this, literally exploring skulls and digging uh, up archaeological sites in Africa. And today, he's very passionate about helping people achieve what he calls vibrant health and really inspiring people to take responsibility for their own self-care. He's a proud father, loves music, just commenced studying uh, at UBC to keep his education going. Uh, In 2012, he married his longtime girlfriend, Elise, and they now split their time between being at home and kiteboarding in the Dominican and touring around the world, trying to inspire and empower other people to achieve great things. I know that you're going to love this conversation. We go all over the place and we really get into the weeds on how to actually make changes in your life. 
This is a powerful one. We focus a lot on nutrition. Please enjoy it. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. Here's my conversation with my buddy, Eric Edmides. Eric, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So uh, I'm catching you uh, in Calgary. You're obviously flying all over the world pretty much consistently. Tell me about your life at the moment. What's going on? Uh, we've just been in here in Calgary uh, because uh, a lot of our support team is here. So we were doing a live broadcast a couple of days ago and then uh, I'm quickly headed to Arizona and then oddly to Kiev because, you know, it's nearby. Of course. Why not? Well, I mean, the last time we bumped into each other was in um, Lithuania, actually. Lithuania, so I'm yeah, surprised right. that you're sitting back over to Eastern Europe. <laughs> that's funny. So tell me about the um, the origin of your work, like the, the, the wild fit. Like, how did you get into health and well-being? Because it hasn't always been that that way but give me a sort of a a bit of a rundown of of your backstory sure I, I think it's the classic case of you know we end up often being out there in the world teaching the thing we need to learn the most you know i at uh, i grew up in canada and, and um when i was about 21 years old i i sat down with a bunch of friends and had a conversation about some of the, the problems that i was dealing with symptoms and you know everything from um, energy problems to you know cystic acne to i had not breathed through my own sinuses in you know like literally years probably almost close to 10 years and of course i'd been to see a new you know uh, an endless list of doctors and specialists and i'd been prescribed you know every inhalant and every injection and every pill and you know, nothing ever really worked. Sure, I'd get a, a slight relief from a symptom for a short time, but nothing ever really made a permanent change. And and uh, so, you know, some friends of mine just sat down and said, maybe I needed to reevaluate my relationship with food, which I thought was insane because, you know, I was eating real, relatively well. You know, I was eating the way everybody eats, you know. And sure, I had fast food from time to time, but not often. And, you know, sure, I, I would, you know, have a little bit of junk food at the movies from time to time, but not often. But, uh, you know... Wow. When we, you know, very often we think we're eating well and that's because, you know, as you know, we've been educated by you know, a large part of our food education has come from food manufacturers. So there's a clue in that. And so I, um, I ended up just trying a little food experiment for 30 days and, you know, within two weeks of that 30 day experience, I was breathing through my sinuses for the first time in a decade. My, uh, my, my skin had cleared up the, the debilitating cramps and headaches I was having were gone. Two weeks later, everything was completely gone. I was down 35 pounds and deeply curious. I mean, sure, I was happy, but I was really curious how it is that I could visit doctors for all these years and get nowhere, and I could just shop in a different section of the grocery store and turn everything around. And so that's, that's unbelievable. That, I mean, wow, it is. It's it's it, and it, and you know and and it now you know 20 years later, I, I've I've answered a lot of those questions. But it you know, I, Greg, I sat with my uncle one day. I I've done this with many doctors, and but I sat with my uncle who was an orthopedic surgeon. And I asked him, I said, you know, how long do you go to school uh, to become an orthopedic surgeon? And it was something like 10 years, you know. And, and I, I asked him in that 10-year period, how much of that time did you spend studying health and nutrition? And I kid you not, he cocked his head to one side like a dog, you know, like, <laughs> like what? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then the significance of the question dropped on him. And, and he said none. And, he, and then he and I ended up having this fascinating conversation about how could it be possible? How could it be possible that he could spend all that time in medical school and not study food? And of course, you know, I've, you know, you know as well as I do how that works. I mean, I've asked that question of doc, uh, doctors in probably 20 countries around the world. And, and the only time I ever get the answer, yeah, I studied food, it's because they took an elective course. And um, in any event, that that led me to, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, sort of multi disciplinary curiosity. So, you know, I, I, I had this curiosity about food and health. And then as it turned out, my, my, my great grandfather had discovered the oldest homo sapiens skull. And so I'd been deeply fascinated by, um, you know, archeology, span human history, anthropology, evolution. And then something else really significant happened. And that was that, um, I know it's a little silly, but you know, I, I, I was working in a sales organization and I'd been to many motivational speakers that had, you know, pumped us all up and made us feel good. But then on Monday, I would just, I'd be the same guy I was before the seminar. You know, it's like, you'd feel good in the moment, but nothing would really change. And, and oddly, I went off to go and see uh, Tony Robbins. And I went to one of his seminars. And, and that next Monday, I'm 21 years old, that next Monday, I was a different person. I was making significantly more sales calls. I was, I was closing more sales. I was more, I had better rapport with the people around me. I had better energy. And what struck me about it was there was, there were ways that he was teaching that, that integrated change for me. And so when I had the opportunity 
I don't know, you know, uh, probably starting about 10 years ago to sort of combine those different curiosities into one thing. That's what kind of gave birth to WildFit. Because look, you and I both know you can sit with a patient who's suffering through type 2 diabetes and, and, and weight problems and a bunch of other symptoms, and you can tell them exactly what they should eat and exactly what they shouldn't eat. And that'll last for somewhere between five minutes and five days. And, and what we needed to be able to do is to figure out how to get them to want to stick to the rules or not even to think of them as rules. And, and that's really what, what the work of creating WildFit has been all about. That's, that's really, really interesting. interesting. There's um, <clears throat> so, so much to sort of deconstruct there. And I'd love to get into a little bit around the five, to five, five minutes to five days, intellect versus heart. And the reason why I'm interested in that is because I did a nutrition session recently at a company and a lady came up to me afterwards and she was very interested in the material. She says, I really need to know this. Uh, sorry, I know this. I know I need to do this. And that triggered me because she's like, I know I need to do this. But she's having a really hard time doing it for herself. She was doing it for her kids. She was doing it for her mom. She was taking care of everybody else, not taking care of herself. And it was interesting that as soon as I pointed that out to her, that she was able to recognize that she needs to love herself as much as she loves her family and take care of herself as she takes care of her family. And that subtle tweak in her mindset seemed to make a huge difference for her. So it, it, it sounds like you have gone down that road of really exploring intellect versus heart and the heart leads change. So I'd, I'd love to hear more on that. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. I, I, I a lot of times it has to do with perspective. Um, one of the little stunts that I do when I've got a live audience, you know, let's say, let's say I've got a thousand people in the audience, then what I'll do is I'll, I'll with a sense of playfulness, is I'll say to everybody, uh, do me a favor and everybody make the sound that represents the emotional response to we're about to order pizza and and pop and 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 chips and junk food. You know, we're about to order it. We're going to have Uber Eats, bring it over, uh, make the sound that represents the emotional response to the decision to order that food. One, two, three. And what do you get? Way, yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. And, then, and then, then I like, okay, do me a new one. And what I want you to do is make the sound that represents the kinesthetic response in your body 35 minutes later. Oh, <laughs> like, and yeah. it's uniform. So they know this, people know this, but the problem is, is that where um, our perspective is very much about the now. And so when we, one of the things that we need to do with people is get them to be able to shift that perspective. Uh, in, in other words, if you could get people to feel that feeling before they order the pizza, they would never order it. Yeah, they'd never order it. Like if you could actually put fast forward your brain like 30, 30 minutes to that sensation of what you feel afterwards, that would be absolutely brilliant. That would make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then, then we have to go through, you know, recognizing what the various triggers are in WildFit. We have something we call the six core hungers and they, they appear to be the six primary drivers for eating. And, and one of them is obviously emotion. And, I, you know, so I had quite an interesting experience. It's, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been over a decade that I would eat a donut or so well, well past that, that I would eat a donut or, a, you know, something along those lines. And, but I had the oddest experience that really showed me how, how deep memory goes to our food behaviors and nostalgia and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, two years ago, uh, Elise and I were having a baby. And so we, we wanted to have the baby in Halifax. And I had grown up largely in Halifax. So, you know, that was kind of cool. It was kind of neat to go back and the little nostalgia roads that you're driving along. And, you know, it's really fascinating. But I, I, I kid you not, I'm driving along now. Greg, you know, look, I, I've seen, I, I've spent a lot of time in Vancouver. I spent a lot of time in Ontario. I, you know, I see Tim Hortons. It does nothing for me. I'm not interested in it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. But I'm driving along in Halifax and I turn around this one corner that I've been down hundreds of times in my life from the age of five. You know, it's the place we would go at the end of a hockey game. It's the place we would go when we did a really great job on a school assignment. It's the place that we would go for birthday parties, you know, and, and I'm driving around the corner and all of a sudden my little food devil, you know, we, in Wildfit, we talk about the food angel and the food devil and my little food devil, he, uh, he goes, Hey, Tim Hortons. I'm not kidding. I'm in the car. I'm in the car and I hear this voice in my head 
And I literally bust out laughing, like, because there's no way I'm not interested, but my food devil was still trying it on. Hey, hey. And as I started laughing, he goes, what are you laughing at, dude? They've got honey crullers in there and maple filled donuts. And I'm no kidding. I'm in the car alone, laughing, laughing so hard. And the people around me, I must think I'm crazy. But I was laughing because I, I couldn't believe that the nostalgia was so strong. I have no desire for that food of any kind. And yet the food devil's still in there trying to act like a little drug dealer. Come on, just one. <laughs> Holy smokes, that's amazing. I'm sure every single person can totally relate to that, like the angel versus the devil. And it's in that moment. And I find that it's um, a lot harder when you're tired, like when you're fatigued or stressed or, um, you know, there's some sort of a, a difficult, every, when, when everything's going perfect and you had a great night's sleep and you're at home and the food is, you know, easy to access and you've got the healthy stuff in your kitchen, it's not a big deal. It's when you're on the road, it's when you're tired, it's when you've had a rough day. That's when the devil gets really, really strong. And that's quite funny that he was speaking to you from, you know, 20 years in your, in your past in that particular moment. But remember the, the, the food, it's not only when you're weak, that's the joke of it is it's also when you're strong. Like one of the exercises that we do with our clients is uh, we say, tell me what all of the excuses you are for making exceptions. Because that's really the issue is exceptions, right? You know, people mm. think that they're mostly healthy and they make the odd exception. But the truth is most people are constantly making exceptions. And and so if you think about it, we, we run through this exercise. Like, you know, we might have, uh, you know, 500, 600 people in one class. And so we'll ask them all, let's brainstorm a list of the exceptions. And what are the exceptions? I had a bad day. It's raining. Uh, somebody was rude to me. Somebody cut me off in traffic. So, uh, my dog died. It's somebody's birthday. I had a great day. I had to celebrate. I, I did well on an exam, right? Like we have a million little uh, rules that we've created for why we can make exceptions. And the fact is, is that the more rules you have for having an exception, the more likely it is you're going to have cancer and a heart attack. That's just the fact of it. And, and, and so it's not just when we're feeling low. Sometimes it's when we're feeling great. Why? Well, Here's a funny one. When you think about food psychology, just yesterday I saw this. I talk about it all the time, but just yesterday I saw it again. It just, it just really made me you know, smile. I see this family walking along yesterday, and it's a father and a mother and the two kids, and they've got ice cream cones. And the father is looking around everywhere. He's looking around, and I know what he's looking for. I know exactly what he's looking for because I tell this story all the time. He's looking for a park bench. And the reason that he's looking for a park bench is that he doesn't quite feel comfortable to eat ice cream standing up because when he was a little boy, his parents controlled his behavior with ice cream. His parents told him, I'll get you an ice cream as long as you sit down because his parents wanted a moment of peace. And so now he's 45 years old and he's eating an ice cream and he has no idea that the reason he needs a park bench is because he was conditioned and anchored to eat ice cream on a park bench. So suddenly he spots one about 15 feet away from me and he turns to the family and goes, Come on now, guys, got to have a sit down when we're eating ice cream. <laughs> and the guy has wow. no idea that that's a conditioned response from a behavior that, that his parents gave him and that he is now giving to his children. Now, that's an innocuous one. That's a cute one. But what about the decision that led him to get everybody ice cream in the first place? Mm -hmm. What about the decision that led him to want to feed his, his family uh, a food that really has no purpose of any kind other than to slam your pancreas, to clog your bloodstream. I mean, what was the decision? Well, probably something similar where they had a really nice day as a family and he remembers that that's how his family rewarded situations like that. The challenge, of course, is, is that he's unconscious of that. And that's, that's one of the big things that we have to do if we're going to have somebody change their relationship with food is we have to change their consciousness. How do you make that shift in consciousness? Because I, I really like the fact that we're talking about stories and rules and exceptions. And as we're speaking, um, it's funny because, you know, I've this year made some quote unquote exceptions around, oh, well, I'm traveling. So it's hard to eat well on the road. And it's funny because I'm actually flying to Halifax as we speak. So there must be some universe at work here that's trying to get me to think differently. And I'm actually packed a bag full of food, which the guy at security on like he pulled it all out because he couldn't believe there's omega threes, there's protein powder, there's, there's living fuel, there's a can of tuna, there's a shaker bottle. There's like, cause I'm no longer going to allow my nutrition to be controlled by whatever the hotel has. I have to take control of that. If I'm going to take my health to the next level in the, in the year, in the upcoming year, given how much travel I have booked. 
But I'd love to know more about um, stories, rules, exceptions, and, and making that shift from unconscious to conscious, and how you might how how you might actually make that happen. Okay, well, there 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 are a number of different issues. The one is once once um well, how about this? Let's let's take a look at uh, childhood experience. Sometimes, if you shine a bright enough light on a childhood experience, what you're able to do is uh, see that childhood experience through the lens of your current experience, which allows you to change the meaning you created as a child. And this is. This is extremely helpful when it comes to food. So one of my clients, uh, um, she did our program and she did extremely well with it. Uh, she, you know, one of the one of the most beautiful comments I got from her was that here she is in her, uh, you know, in her forties, and she says that for the first time in twenty years, she's happy to go to the beach in a two piece swimsuit. You know, everybody has different ways that they measure that they've gotten themselves back on track, right? Uh, so, so this woman came to us and and uh, um, you know she wanted to do the program a second time, which always makes me curious because. You know, usually what happens is people change their relationships with all their key and trigger foods. And then sometimes they find there's one or two that's still in there. And in her case, it was icing. So she's got this like ever growing desire for icing. She just, and, and so I, I'm, my feeling is that, you know, this is clearly a childhood link up. So I go, I ask her to tell me what her relationship with icing was like. And she's like, well, you know, my mom used to bake and I'm, I just jump into this assumption mode. I know what this is. Your mom used to bake and make homemade icing and let you lick out the bowl and she goes, no, no, it wasn't like that. And I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> okay, tell me what it is. And she says, well, you know, my mom would get canned icing and, and I would hear the, the can opener spinning. So I would come running down the stairs. I'd sneak a spoon out of the drawer. I would uh, scoop my, I, I, I'd wait till she wasn't looking and I'd scoop some out and hide under the, under the shelf. And, and she'd usually let me get away with about two scoops and then she'd bust me and we'd laugh and it would be cute and so on. And so it became really clear what's going on. She's linked up this icing to the love and connection and playfulness with her mother. And so the next question I asked her was, how's your relationship with your mother right now? And she says, my mom's experiencing early stage dementia. And so what's happening is that as her mother is slipping away from her, she is grabbing hold of anything she can that gives her that feeling. And an icing happens to be one of them. And as soon as she saw it, as soon as I asked her what's going on with her mother, as soon as she saw the link, she just burst into tears, but she was done with icing. How do we make that link? Like that's, that's pretty, I'm just, I'm stunned by the emotional depth, the, the depth of emotional connection to food and how it's unconscious and how many of the, the, the I won't even call them decisions. Many of the reactions that we have on a daily basis are linked to things other than the need for nourishment. And I, I just, I'm just fascinated by by that because it's something that I think a lot of people are probably right now in their minds um, processing and saying, "Oh my gosh, yeah, maybe I, I start to I, I'm seeing something here that I've never seen before, or that I was aware of, and maybe I've just been ignoring for a long time." How do we begin to make that that conscious link or become more aware and uh, increase our attention so we're able to notice these things in the moment and make better decisions? It's, it's, it's a tough process and it definitely helps. Um, it definitely helps to have somebody else, uh, guiding you through the process because it's, it, they're deeply ingrained. They're so deep that we often can't see them. You know, I, I'm, I've been fascinated by evolution and evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology since I was like 12. And, um, and so, you know, you got to tell us about the skull too. That's just mind blowing. Like yeah, that's the connection that. between like evolution and your interest in it and the skull and where we're going with this conversation. Like I got to hear about that as well. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt. Please keep going. This is so cool. <laughs> well, you know, one of the, uh, one of the little things that I observed is I think that we, we humans have an app and that app is if I am still alive, whatever I've been doing thus far is, is a good strategy. And, and the reason we have this app is that if you really think about it, survival was an incredibly unlikely thing for most generations. You know, if you if you were to ask the average person around you right now in the in the lounge there at the airport, you would you would find that that, uh, you know, probably less than one of one in 10 of them have ever actually faced death in any kind of a real way. Mm -hmm. But if you go back one generation, you'll find that most of those people faced it a few times in their lives. And if you go back another generation, then they faced it annually. And if you go back 10 generations, then it was something they faced on a weekly or daily basis. You know, if you think about that skull of my grandfather's, I mean, I, I, I take a look at that skull. It's got two holes in it and the holes are right, the right size for either a leopard or a hyena. What we don't know because it's 259,000 years old is whether those are 
that whether those are cause of death or perimortem. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's what life was like back then. It was dangerous. There were animals. There was weather. We didn't have houses. We didn't have airbags. We, you know, we, we didn't have all these safety mechanisms around us. And so if you were alive on Tuesday, okay, we didn't even have Tuesday. But if you were alive on a day, it meant that whatever you did the day before was probably a good strategy. And I think that we have a learning mechanism that I, that I call like the survival app. And that learning mechanism is the basis of superstition and it's the basis of habit. So for example, we have our baseball player who's getting ready to go out and play in the World Series. It's his first ever World Series. He's excited, of course. He leans down to tie his shoes on and as he ties his left shoe, he ties the bow and he leans up to tie the right shoe, but he accidentally bangs his head on his locker. And then he mm-hmm. ties his right shoe and he rubs his head. It's kind of sore. Then he goes out and it's his turn to bat. The bases are loaded, of course, and he hits a grand slam. He, he hits four. He did. He just hits a, a grand slam and then it's and he wins the World Series. Tell me how he's going to tie his shoes for the rest of his life. Exactly the same way and might even try to smash his head a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that is a built in response in humans. And it is the basis of superstition and it's the basis of habit forming. And so what that kind of means is, is that if you survived your childhood with Coca-Cola and pizza, well, then that seems to be working for you. And it becomes an ingrained survival. You believe it to be a survival habit. But of course, back then, back then, the fact of the matter is, is that you, you pretty, you know, if you ate something that was good for you, well, that was kind of normal. If you ate something that was bad for you, you got an immediate communication about that, either because you got immediately sick or you died and that behavior ceased to exist. And so one of the things mm-hmm. that we want to look at is those automatic thought processes and those automatic behaviors that we've made. And so very often it's because of a, uh, a habit that we've created when we were young. And, and so when we look at the six hungers that humans face, Uh, You know, I mentioned emotion, but here's another one. Thirst. Thirst is a form of hunger. Now, this may sound a little counterintuitive to begin with, but again, our ancestors did not have pottery, right? You know, I mean, they've just discovered this uh, pre-Giza pyramid village in Egypt. I was just reading about it yesterday. So it predates the biggest, it predates the first of the pyramids by 2,500 years. They had pottery, but that's among the earliest pottery. So, you know, they didn't have water bottles. So that meant that they, when they found water, they would drink it like crazy. But then the rest of the time they're traveling around, where were they getting the water from? Water-based foods. The vast Mm. majority of the food that we ate was water-based, lots lots of plants. And so what the, one of the challenges is that as you start to become dehydrated, your body says to you, eat something, go on, eat something. Oh, please eat something because your body is thirsty and it, and at a DNA level, at a millions of years level, we've been getting our hydration by eating food with water in it. And so the body doesn't differentiate and say, go and eat something with water in it. It just says, go eat something because the majority of what we ate had water in it. The problem today is a bag of potato chips doesn't have any water in it. And so now people are dehydrated. They're getting a signal, eat something, and they go eat a bag of potato chips, which absolutely needs water to be processed. So it's a, it's a negative quantity of water. And so guess what? They're even more dehydrated, which is why they got to go, oh, I just need one more chip. So when we look at the different motivations, what, what we have to realize is that, like, here's another one of the six hungers, nutrition. What I mean by this is that when we're low on specific nutritional constituents, then again, our, we look, it's not like our body in the old days could create a shopping list. Oh, I'm, excuse me, Greg, but could you pick up some magnesium at the store for me? I'm, and you <laughs> yes. seem to be a bit low on, on omega fats. Could you pick up some of those? No, the body just basically said, eat something. And at the, the closest refinement we got to nutrition-based cravings is, would you go eat some fat, please, Greg? And, you know, I could use some sugar at the moment and I could use a little bit of salt. I mean, that's basically it. We have basic flavor driven cravings, but the food under- industry understands those flavor based driven cravings and has now put those flavors in things that are completely dysfunctional for us. So now we're eating a bunch of foods because of our flavor based cravings that have no nutritional value to us. And so we're nutritionally starving. And even though we might be overweight, so we're overfed on calories. We're underfed on nutrition. And guess what? That means we're permanently hungry. When you add that to a little dehydrated and then you're also feeling a little low, three of your hungers are demanding that you eat and you wonder why you're eating beyond how, beyond the capacity of your stomach. Well, that's fascinating because um, I'm a fast, I'm a physiologist and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in energy and uh, I just spend a lot of my time researching mitochondria. And when I 
break down what mitochondria do. They run the Krebs cycle, which everyone probably remembers from grade 10 bio, probably giving people convulsions right now as they listen to this. But <laughs> in the Krebs cycle, there's four inputs. And in order to make the Krebs cycle work, to break down carbohydrates, fats, or proteins, uh, you need water. Without yep. that water, the Krebs cycle doesn't actually work. So you cannot create energy. And so if you're dehydrated, you're probably low on energy, which makes you crave carbohydrates, fats, salts, whatever, plus probably caffeine as well and any other stimulant you can possibly get. Um, when in fact, what we need to begin with is water to begin to provide the the fundamental currency that we need for energy inside of our bodies. So I, I love that you've brought that up. That's really interesting. The way we put it to our clients is, you know, we, we, we put it to them. We said, what do you think the number one need you have is? And then they go, uh, vegetables, you know, because of the whole plant-based diet movement that's coming up. And I think that's great. It's a good answer, but it's not true because you know, how long can we live without food? Assuming you're well nourished to begin with, how long can you live without food functionally? A month? Probably, yeah, a few weeks, yeah, yeah for I mean, sure. It, it, the, the great news about that is, is while there may be tons of fasting clinics that don't do any clinical research around fasting, here's what we do know, is there have been a ton of political fasters that have gone on mat, on hunger strikes and under medical supervision. So we have a very clear idea of what happens to the body when we don't eat. And it's a good month before, it becomes, assuming you were nursed to begin with, it's a good month before there's any really serious problems start to pop up. How long mm. can we live without water? Eight, a couple days. Days. But yeah. here's the kicker. How long can we live without air? We're talking minutes. Yeah, and so minutes. that's another big component to this is the vast majority of people are, 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 are breathing shallowly and they're not pushing their physical body because we have elevators and escalators and cars and stuff now. And so they're not walking that kind of base level 10 or 20,000 steps a day. So they're not driving any kind of deep diaphragmic breathing. So they're running low on oxygen most of the time, which causes adrenaline production. And it, which it, it, you see, it's like it actually starts with breathing and water. And then we can actually talk about food. So I'm just writing notes and I'm writing breathe, drink, nourish, move like just super basic fundamental you just laid out the, things you just laid out the food pyramid according to wildfit effectively you know we, okay, we cool. <laughs> you know we can get deeper into the into the what, what food means but the, those are the core things first is air and that means really making a concerted effort to breathe well look there's all this research about how meditation is good for you and uh, look i've got my i've got one foot on the spiritual side and i've got one foot on the practical side on and here's the practical side if i told you that I had a Bushman here with me, because as I think you know, I've, I've gone out to live with, with the Hadza Bushman in East Africa on numerous occasions to study food and, and, and you know, nutritional anthropology and stuff. So imagine I've got one of my Bushman friends and, and, and we're in the bush and he's breathing uh, like this. What, what do you know about his environment? It's probably a lion close by. He's stressed out. Yeah. But if he's breathing like this... Well, then, you know, he's not stressed out. You know, his environment's completely safe. And so, you know, and, and incidentally, Greg, I truly, no kidding, 100%, and it's happened to me a few times in my life where I've been walking along in the bush in Africa and I've walked around. I remember one time distinctly just about a year and a half ago, walking into a gully and just on the other side of the gully, I'm not talking more than 100 feet away, 30 meters away, there are 14 lions. Mm -hmm. I did not breathe like this. <laughs> you know, if anything, yeah. I stopped breathing. And the, one of the reasons that we do that is that when we stop breathing or we start breathing really quickly, that's a signal to the body that we're in danger and we start producing adrenaline. And so most people are breathing this way. They've never calibrated adrenaline properly in the first place because they don't live in an environment where they're facing death on any kind of regular basis. So they open a visa bill, they start breathing like that, and they start to feel like the visa bill can kill them. And so this, this is all related to then the food decisions we're making because when you are in a stressed out state of mind, when somebody is in a stressed out state of mind, even just because they're not breathing properly, then their body goes into survival thinking. And the more survival thinking we have, survival thinking is um, fundamentally pessimistic. So once you're in survival thinking, it is safer to be pessimistic. It is much safer to, to assume that that tawny colored rock over there is a lion than it is to assume that that lion is a rock. So the more frightful we become, the more pessimistic we become. And then the next thing that happens when we're more pessimistic is our body starts to go, holy crap, we're in danger times. If there's any food around, you should get some now. 
And mm. so suddenly we start eating for survival, even though our survival was never under threat of any kind. And then, of course, you know, we're, we're, that's where we get into this. And, and by the way, I love that you prep and take your food with you because the challenge we have is that we're being fed by the zookeepers, you know. And, 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 and so the problem is, is that at the minute we get hungry enough, the hungrier we get, the more motivated we are to eat the more flexible our food rules become. In fact, the more flexible our definition of food even becomes. And so if you were to travel and you didn't bring food with you, and then travel is fundamentally stressful. I mean, just go through any TSA checkpoint, right? It's fundamentally stressful. And so now we're under a degree of stress. You haven't brought food with you. And the airline brings something that they allege is food. But you and I both know it's not food. But if you're hungry enough, it becomes food. It's pretty terrifying what's available in the in in the environment that that you move through, and this could like in my current today world that involves a um, an airport, an airplane, and a, a hotel, so nothing reliable. Um, and you know, I'm staying in a decent hotel, so there might be some food that might be all right, but in general, I don't really trust it anymore. But that's the same as if you're talking about going to school. There's no good well. It's rare that there's good, healthy food available in schools. It's the same in an office environment. It's very rare that there's good, healthy food made available to people in the office environment. And it's it's interesting that you've separated out. Um, we're overfed and undernourished because I've said the the same thing. Where um, health is pick this up from. Um, a book and I'm blanking on it, but health is equal to nutrients over calories. The more nutrients you get into your system in general, the healthier you're, you're likely to be. So just love your thoughts on, on that nutrition and that nourish component of it as well, just to give people some insights on maybe how they can begin to fight back against this environment that's totally set up against us right now. You know, I, one of the principles, we have these core principles of WildFit, and one of the core principles of WildFit is that your health is far more dependent upon you getting enough of your nutritional needs met than it is on removing bad things. The challenge is, of course, that the diet industry is largely predicated on removing bad things. And and while bad things probably do need to be removed, the the, the much more important thing is the putting in of the good things. And and I I, I mean, my, my little demonstration of that works like this. If you and I were to conduct an experiment where we took a group of humans and we put them in a controlled environment and we controlled their food completely. That is to say that we fed them precisely what humans need to eat. We fed them a nice variety of the vegetables that they are, that they require uh, a little bit of seasonal availability of fruits. We gave them high quality proteins. We made sure they had enough water. We really made sure that they were eating properly, but, but we used some kind of scientific process to remove vitamin C from their food. So they're not going to eat any ice cream. They're not going to eat any you know, preservatives. They're not going to eat any GMOs. They're not going to eat any saturated fats. They're eating nothing wrong. They're eating everything the way they were supposed to eat, but we've removed the vitamin C. What's going to happen? They're going to get scurvy and get sick. And die. Yeah. Having never eaten a Mars bar. And so all this focus on remove these seven deadly foods is the, one of the reasons that that fundamentally falls on, it, on its face and fundamentally doesn't work long term. I mean, I've always said, Greg, if there was one diet book that ever actually worked, there wouldn't be a diet industry. Yes, that's so true. Isn't it? Yeah, and so you know, we're, we're in this place where most of these diets are predicated upon, you know, re- remove the white foods, remove these seven dangerous foods. But here's the challenge. Since most people are overfed calories and underfed nutrients, the minute you ask them to remove anything, you amplify their feelings of starvation and hunger. And so they're going to boomerang or they're going to go on a yo-yo diet. And so the very first thing that we have to do to turn somebody's relationship with food around is get their nutrition built up. That's more important than removing the bad stuff. And, and, and what's fascinating is, you know, this is, by the way, our parents kind of tried this when we were kids, didn't they? Come on, eat all the food on your plate before you have dessert, right? They tried it, but of course the food that was on our plate <laughs> had been bought by lobbyists. And so it wasn't even functional to begin with, but, but the concept was sound. The concept was, Hey, let's get our needs met then, hey, yeah, you want to have something that's not so, so not so terribly functional. The fact is, if the body is really well nourished, it can get the toxins out. The problem is when the body's really malnourished, it's trying to use everything you put in and then you really become, you are what you eat. That's really, uh, I just sort of kicked into sort of thinking about increasing nutrients and how that might actually help me to, to, I was doing a Greg Wells therapy session as I do on these podcasts, as you were talking there. Um, 
what is it? What does really great nutrition look like from your perspective? You mentioned veggie, veggies, seasonal fruits, protein, water. Like, what should we be adding in? Again, let's not worry about like what do we need to get rid of. I, I really like that idea because I think humans are better at um, replacing things than re- than removing them. But what would what are some things people could start to add in if they're interested in going down this road? Okay, so Greg, I'm a bit of a purist about this, and and uh, you know, and and I, I know that there's a lot of debate about you know what's good and what's bad and all this kind of stuff, and you know, I I I, I would put to you that there's only one reason for that debate, and that is that that debate is profitable, because there is absolutely no mystery at all as to what the human diet is. There isn't, and and I you know, and and I, I say that with this with, with with this thought process that many years ago when I first was starting to ask these questions I found myself on a plane flying to South Africa on a photo assignment for Virgin Airlines and I'm reading in there a magazine because I'm about to you know do some photography and an article for the magazine so I want to see how the magazine looks and what they want and I'm reading this article and I find a fascinating article about captive elephants and what was happening is is a hundred years ago they would go and capture an elephant and take it and put it in a zoo or a circus and the elephant would live about six or seven years. Nobody knew that that was not, you know, uh, reflective of the elephant lifespan because back then they didn't know these things. In fact, little dogs live 15 years and big dogs like Great Danes might live seven or eight or nine years. So, so why would an elephant live any longer? So, and also if they got their money back in the six or seven years in ticket sales, well, you know, it was a good investment. And then, of course, as we started to study nature a great deal, this article was talking about, we discovered the fact that elephants in nature can live routinely 70 to 80 years. And so suddenly these zoo owners and circus owners started becoming fascinated with their investments. Like they're starting, wow, you mean I could get this elephant to live? I wouldn't have to buy a new elephant every 10 years. And so, so, so the article went on to talk about how they started trying to get the elephants to live longer. And so in the article, they started referring to observations they made of elephants in the wild. And they called them, they said these elephants were living on, quote, their wild diet and that and uh, that the elephants living in, in, in the zoos and circuses were living on the elephant's captive diet. Now, this annoyed me because I'm a little bit of a, I'm a, little bit of a grammarian. You know, I, I think it comes out of being dyslexic that I want language to be quite specific, right? So I'm, I, this is annoying me because the elephants are not on the wild diet. You, you know, that, that is yes. a grammatical fallacy. They are on the elephant diet. And as I really, truly, I want to get a red marker out and circle every reference to wild diet because it's wrong. There is no wild diet. There is the elephant diet. And as I had that thought, that led to the next thought. And the next thought is, wait a minute, we use the word diet badly. We, we use it badly because if, if, if Richard Attenborough is, is doing a, a television special on elephants, he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, this elephant went on a diet. He goes, the elephant diet. Oh, the elephant diet, the lion diet. The, the leaf cutter ant has a diet. Every organism on earth has a diet. And the original meaning of the word diet meant lifestyle. It's only for humans and, of course, now our pets that we use the word diet as a short-term change to your normal lifestyle in order to fit into that bikini for the summer. So, so we, this is the first key thing that I really got to is that every living organism on earth has a diet. And that had me ask the question, you know, what, what is it for humans then? Doesn't it stand to reason that there's a human diet? And, and, and so luckily for me, let's go back to my grandfather and his discovery of the Florispad skull. I found myself going through many of the caves that he excavated and explored on the coast of Southern Africa. And, and Greg, I walk into one of these caves, you and I, you and I, you, like, seriously, let's go record a podcast live from there one day. And I'm, I'm serious about that. It's such a fast. I'm going in October. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. The, 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 I went down into one of these caves and, um, and what they have done is they've cut down into the cave floor, like about 10, 12 feet deep, and then put glass walls up so that you can kind of see the layers and layers that have built up in the cave all these years. Now let's put this in perspective. You and I are Canadians. How, how old is a whole, an old house in Canada, in, in Eastern Canada, an old house might be 200 years old. Yeah, really old. Yeah, and then I lived in England for a while. An old house there might be four hundred years old, and, and and then and then if we go to the to mainland Europe and, and we end up in Croatia, an old building there might be a thousand years old. If we go to the pyramids, you know, they're really old. I mean, they're like thirty five hundred years old. And so all these people that are talking about ancient health principles, you know, eat the way your great grandmother ate. These are ancient principles. Well, people have been living in those caves that my grandfather excavated for two hundred thousand years that 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 means they've been living in those caves when they started living in those caves the 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 pyramids are only five minutes ago to us relatively 
And so what's mm-hmm. really fascinating is that when humans live in caves, you know what they do is they eat food and then they just throw it over their shoulder when they're done, the rinds, the bones, the whatever. And so what happens is the cave floor grows over the centuries. And so when you cut down 12 feet into the floor, you can see exactly what humans have been eating for 200,000 years. And of course, if we've been eating those things for 200,000 years, we've evolved the capacity to process those foods. And then, of course, we've evolved something else, and that is the nutritional dependency upon those foods. So when you ask what we should be eating, it's with a degree of certainty that I say human beings have traditionally eaten 200 different plant species a year. The average American today is eating five, and that's only because the FDA now allows pizza to count as one of them. So Yeah, don't get me started on that. That's insane. But it is. It's, yeah. it's completely insane. And so the average, you know, our ancestors were eating seasonally, of course, and this is a key principle of WildFit. We were eating seasonally a, a variety of 200 different plant species a year. And, and, and But there's some distinctions we have to talk about is this seasonal idea. You know, everybody's vilifying fruit at the moment. I was reading recently... Uh, uh, I, I won't I won't name and shame on this podcast, but I've been on a friend of mine's podcast who recently published this whole article, shaming fruit, give up fruit, fruit's terrible for you. Really, tell our ancestors that. But what I would agree with is that our ancestors, our ancestors only had access to fruit for a few days at a time. I mean, it was ripe. You and I would walk up to the tree and we'd like, oh, check it out. This is yummy. And we'd eat as much of it as our bellies would possibly be able to stand. Because even when we walked away, we would have a little bit of a glycemic rush. And then that would call us a little bit of an insulin crush. And so then 15 minutes later, you and I'd be going, hey, you want to go back and get some more? And we would eat all of it. But then a week later, it would yeah. be gone. And we wouldn't have access to it anymore. And then our pancreas would get a break. So we should be eating a variety of plant foods, including fruit. But we should be circumspect about fruit. We shouldn't be slamming our pancreas with sugar on a daily basis. And, you know, we should be eating high quality, low fat meats. I'm all, I get this whole, like, you know, uh, uh, the sugar industry blamed the fat industry and now we vilified fat and the whole low fat movement was wrong. Well, it, no, it wasn't wrong. It was misguided. It, it, we, there are certain fats that we absolutely shouldn't be eating. But let's remember our ancestors, their access to fat was unbelievably limited. Do you know how much fat is in an elephant? And which is, by the way, one of our favorite foods, archaeologically or historically. It's about four percent fat. But you know, now of course we have a different access to fat. So, to me, if if somebody wants to really boost up their nutrition and not worry immediately about getting rid of stuff, what that means is hydrate like crazy. It means eat an an, an inordinate uh, amount of plant-based foods. It means being circumspect about eating fruit, eating it on a more seasonal basis. It means eating high quality. Uh, naturally produced uh, proteins. It means eating some, uh, you know, nuts and seeds from time to time. Uh, it means eating shellfish and and getting the omega fats that we need to have. And and that's pretty much it. You know that 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 that's pretty much what humans need. Every, anything outside of that window, I regard as optional. It's interesting. Do you have any favorite cookbooks or um, ideas for people to start? eating a, a lot more plant-based foods. We've gone into um, Rich Roll's uh, The Plant Power Way, Oh, She Glows by Angela Lydon. Um, do you have any resources for people that they might be able to check out just to help them begin to go down that road? Because I couldn't agree more. The research is is totally clear. Yeah, The more vegetables that you eat in general, the longer you're going to live. Uh, the, more vari- the more of a variety of different vegetables, the more phytonutrients, flavonoids, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory molecules you're going to get into your body to help repair all of your tissues. Like this is exactly what I believe in. So just wondering if there's any other resources you know about that might help people to begin to go down this road if they're interested. Absolutely. Uh, there's a couple uh, ideas that I've got on that front. Um, the, uh, the, the first thing is I, I just want to make a, a kind of a clarification on one of the aspects of food that I think is really important. Um, the uh, okay, let's go back to the cookbook issue. Uh, you know, it, we we certainly we have a um, uh, like a WildFit snack pack cookbook that people can get. I think it's for free at getwildfit.com. So they can certainly go and do that, and that give them some you know uh, some initial snacky ideas for healthy eating and that sort of stuff. So that's I'm pretty sure that that's for free from our website, so they can do that. Um, now there are, is another important distinction that I think we have to take a look at with, um, with food, with, with, with vegetables. And that is that not all plants are edible. And I know we already know that of course, cause we don't walk around eating oak trees, but, but I think it's a more intricate conversation than that. 
Um, you know, Greg, if you and I were to suddenly get on a spaceship and fly up to Alpha Centauri and it turns out that there's a planet, there's a moon, you know, and it's full of plants, could we eat any of them? Well, yeah, probably not. Probably not. If we could, if we could eat any of them, it would be a complete fluke. It would be a, it would be like a lottery win. It would be very un, unlikely. And then the idea that we would actually be able to process any of the nutrition from them is even another thing. Like, for example, the table that I'm sitting at right now is made out of wood, which means it probably is full of flavonoids and a bunch of other vitamins and minerals. But as I am neither a termite nor a beaver, I can't eat it. And so this is an important distinction with, with, with um, vegetables. And so years ago, my father asked me why it is, this is maybe 15 years ago, my father asked me why it is that under a wild fit principle, we didn't call it wild fit back then, but under my, my writing, he said, why is it that I'm an advocate? Why is it that I believe that humans can eat, say, bison as a meat, as, which is a North American meat, but not, not that we should probably steer away from American plants. And so this stirred a very interesting conversation. And, and the way I put it to him is that all organisms that are prey-based are trying to defend themselves constantly. So the bison defends itself through speed and strength. Once we have, through our ingenuity and tools and hunting technique, have surpassed and, and, and gone past their speed and strength, the meat itself does not try to defend itself in any way. Um, you know, and so animals have physical defenses, but they also have biochemical defenses like skunks use biochemistry to defend themselves. So does the water buck in Southern Africa. It, it, it has an oil in its skin that when lions are chasing it, it'll run into the water because the lions won't go into the water typically, but that's where the crocodiles are. But luckily they have an oil in their skin that stops the crocodiles. So biochemistry is another form of defense. And so plants use both physical and biochemical defenses as well. So plants use things like thorns and you know, evolution is fascinating when it comes to thorns. There are leaves that are thorns, there's bark that are thorns, there's branches that are thorns, and they're just thorns that are thorns. But plants also use biochemical defenses. And if we've not been eating a plant for you know millions of years, or at least hundreds of thousands of years, then we haven't evolved the capacity for surpassing or overcoming those biochemical defenses, which means we need to be cautious of certain plants. And so we, if we're going to recommend, hey, everybody get out there and get your um, your vegetable intake, then one of the things that we, we that we really suggest is that vegetables that come from the old world are significantly safer and significantly uh, more nutritionally beneficial than plants that come from the new world. Um, the, the, this concept, I wrote about this in an article 10 years ago uh, called the Twin, Twin Peaks of Improbability, which is a play on the Richard Dawkins climbing Mount Improbable because things happen in pairs. The, the only reason we have the fastest, you know, the, the cheetah is the fastest land animal in the world is because it has a gazelle to chase. And so our digestive system has been in that same type of race with a variety of vegetables. So we eat, if we've been eating something for hundreds of thousands of years, our digestive system from working out how to process it properly. But when we introduce something brand new, like say corn or potatoes, our digestive system doesn't really have an understanding of what those things are. And so that's one of the things that I think we have to be cautious of. And, and, um, and I think uh, uh, Dr. Gundry's book, The Plant Paradox, really addresses some of that stuff really well. So, you know, I, in terms of, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I think is uh, that I'm a little bit cautious of when people say I'm going to become plant-based is that very often they're going to go to um, what the food industry has been telling us are a great source of plants. And, for example, corn and potatoes and those kinds of things are, are far from ideal. I'm, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of looking up and saying, hey, here's a food that's been in human consumption for 100,000 years. That is a food that we definitely want to be adding in. Interesting. Any examples of those just so that people can understand the difference? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if, if we uh, – I mean, it's, it's actually a pretty easy thing to do. We, we, we've actually been building a database in, at getwildfit.com uh, where we have a database of foods where you can look it up. And we've done a bunch of research to say where does this food originate from. Um, so, you know, uh, if, if we look at, um, you know, many of the – well, here's a good example. Apples. You know, nothing more American than apple pie. That is a marketing technique to sell apple pie, right? But you know where apples really come from? They come from Kazakhstan. Interesting. It's an old. Wow, food. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an old world food. Um, there are, you know, a bunch of this sort of cruciferous vegetables that we eat today that you know, some of them are hard to pin down because, of course, humans migrated and took foods around with them. So it's a little bit difficult to pin some of them down. But what, what, what's easier to identify is the things that are obviously new world foods like peanuts. Mm. Peanuts are mm. a new world food. They, they and cashews are, first of all, not nuts, as I'm sure you're aware. They're legumes. And, 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 and neither one of them is um, 
you know, uh, neither one of them are we dependent upon in any way because the, the first time a human, or let me put that another way, the first time a European ate one of those is maybe within 400 years. And, and of course, there were, uh, you know, the earliest people to the Americas that reading those things. And I would suggest they even haven't evolved the capacity to process that stuff properly. Um, other foods that are falling, the nightshade plants that come from South America, the, you know, eggplants, even tomatoes, these things, I'm not saying we can't ever have them. What I'm saying is, is you certainly wouldn't want to have those foods on a daily basis because first of all we have no nutritional requirement for them and secondly they have plant defenses that we haven't evolved the capacity to deal with and so they're going to build up toxicity you know one of the things gundry uh, dr gundry talks about is the, the lectins you know gluten being one that these lectins are plant defenses that that uh, that assault our digestive system when we eat these plants and so we really want to avoid anything that's obviously a new world food like the ones i've like like the ones mm -hmm. i've named Awesome. I'm sensitive to your time. So I want to, um, begin to wrap this up, but I, I obviously, you know, we're just scratching the surface of where we need to go and, and I'm going to take you up on zipping down to South Africa to go to those caves and we'll do a podcast from down, um, in those caves and, and really dig deep, so to speak. Um, but tell me a little bit more about WildFit and 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 how people might be able to access that and learn more because that's the found uh, I think a foundation of what you're doing at the moment and um, how we connected. So I I just love to hear a little bit more about that. Absolutely, you know, WildFit is um, WildFit is a new approach to uh, health transformation and 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 frankly a disruptive approach. Uh, an example of why I say that is that um, one of the owners of Zumba uh, did our program. And uh, immediately booked a private meeting with me. And by the way, when a founder of a billion-dollar fitness brand books a meeting with me, he gets a meeting. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's yep. And uh, and so you know he booked a meeting with me. And and on that call, he said, Eric, I'm I'm blown away by what you've created here. He says the whole world is looking for a diet they can stick to, and what you've done is created a lifestyle that sticks to them. And he says, I think you're about to do to the diet industry what we did to the fitness industry, and I want to be a, a part of that. And he's been on our advisory board ever since. Um, so, so let's talk about, you know, kind of how, why it works so effectively and, and how people can, you know, I mean, look, I've already shared, I've already shared some of the core aspects of it that people can begin to go and do in their lives now without ever even having to do our program. But the way the program ultimately works is that it is a really careful marriage between good nutritional, uh, anthropology, good nutritional science and, and behavioral change, behavioral, uh, change psychology. And so what happens is that people join us for a three initial three month coaching per period. And during that initial three month coaching period, we are carefully guiding them through slight nutritional enhancements and slight psychological um, processes. So, you know, in week one, they do a couple of very special things and those things begin to change the way they think about food. And so I can tell you that by the end of week two, I have a, I have a class that we're currently doing. It's got about 800 people in it. And I just asked them at the end, they're now in week five, I think. But at the end of week two, I said, guys, if this program were to stop right now, how many of you feel like your relationship with food is permanently altered and that your health trajectory is completely improved for life? And about 80% of them after two weeks are raising their hand. That's because the psychological exercises and nutritional enhancements we're making are that effective. So each week we make very specific changes that are designed, first of all, to improve nutrition and secondly, to change food psychology. And then uh, that continues all the way through where and, and, and there's another aspect of what we're doing there is really helping people switch metabolisms. One of the biggest problems that people have these days is that they're predominantly burning sugar. And burning sugar is a, as you know, is a, is a recipe for, you know, mood swings. It's a recipe for energy crashes at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's a recipe for waking up, feeling grogging and needing a coffee to kick your butt. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's what we're doing is moving them toward a, uh, a, a an increased consciousness about food. We're moving them onto a fat burning metabolism and we're doing some things that are very specifically letting their body know that it's okay to release weight. Now, our clients don't all come to us for weight loss. It's not a weight loss program, but it might be the most effective weight loss program there because, frankly, and Greg, I know you know this, but for people who are listening, it's really important to understand the only reason that a body holds on to fat is that the body has a perception that holding on to fat is a survival idea, that it's good for your survival. Once we can demonstrate to the body that that fat is no longer necessary, the body releases that weight with release with relief. It's like, Oh, thank God. I don't know. It's not, I, this is hard on my knees. This is hard on my heart. This is hard on my lymphatic system. And I don't, you're telling me by the way you eat and the way you live right now that I don't need to carry this weight around anymore. Frankly, I'll take this backpack off and put it down. 
And that's a big part of what happens around about week six, week seven, week eight. And then we get into week 13. And what we do in week 13 is we we give them tools for making it a permanent lifestyle change, moving into a phase that we call living wild fit. People can find out a whole lot more about it at getwildfit.com. As I said, there's a free snack pack to kind of get people started available right there at the website. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. Um, it was hugely valuable for everyone. Uh, I hope everyone checks that uh, Get Wild Fit out. And I think that uh, I, I, I know that it'll help people out. So thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Greg. I, I really value the work you're doing. And, and I, you know, the minute, the minute you suggested we do this, I, there was no issue about making time for it. Happy to do it again another time. And yeah, let's, there's another trip in, to Africa. I think you're going to need to do. I think the next time I go see the Hadza Bushman, I think you're going to need to come along for that as well. I'm in. Sign me up. I, as you know, I, I rode my bike across Africa, so I've got quite a affinity for Africa. I've been there a few times, climbed the pyramids. I've been inside the pyramids, so I've got a very, very deep connection to to that continent, and uh, I think we all do to some extent. So uh, I'd love to go and do that. Let's do it. It'll be fun. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind-blowing. I I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play. That makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think. All of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.